Well, again, it would be good if you had your Bible open in Judges 14 and 15. Let's again pray before we consider this passage. Thank you, Father, for your many blessings for today. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for the good food we've eaten. We thank you for the blessing of Christian fellowship and singing together and coming under the teaching of your word. And we pray again that the Holy Spirit might shed light on the word, that we might perhaps see things we haven't seen before, and even if we deal with very familiar truths, we pray that they would come home to our hearts with a certain freshness. So teach us now, be our teacher, we pray. By the power of your Spirit, that we ask this through the name of Jesus. Amen. What kind of people do you think God likes to use? And the obvious really isn't it. You would think God would like to use godly people. People who are committed to Him. People who are responsible and respectable and spiritually mature. People who fit the characteristic outlined in Titus chapter 1 or 1 Timothy chapter 3 where you have outline uh, the qualifications of those fit to be leaders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Honourable, holy, godly people. So if you look at our ministry training models, you might think that God likes to use academic people. It's sort of dirty myself really, coming from a theological college, but it's common for the requirements for ministry training to be, say, a four-year degree with Greek and Hebrew language study and in-depth theology. And in a way, we can, if we're not careful, cut people out of ministry by academic standards. And then if you look at being a church, <coughs> you might conclude that God likes to use effeminate people. Uh, there's a book floating around that some of you will have seen called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And basically the thesis of that book is that although many churches are led by men, they cater for what women most enjoy. We sing sort of girly songs. Most of the uh, jobs available in a church are best suited to women. Lots of them being sort of childcare and meals and, you know, sort of carry things that guns aren't so good at oftentimes. And often the values of the church are values that women tend to reflect better than men. Well, then we come back to Samson. <clears throat> he doesn't seem to be your typical godly, holy man. He doesn't seem to be particularly bookish or academic. And he certainly isn't feminine. Though he does have an eye for the women. But we seem here in Samson to have this classic bloke. He could easily be an Aussie bloke, couldn't he? Can imagine standing for Vatican with him having a chat over a beer. He is the woman on the life and soul of the party, the good time guy. Strong, aggressive, impulsive. And yet, he is used by the Lord. He is enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God wants him to do. 
I want to begin by highlighting some verses, we'll just read these verses, where you see the focus on the enabling and prompting and empowering the Holy Spirit in Anthem's life. Chapter 14, verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Chapter uh, 14, verse 16. Now, sorry, verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Chapter 15, verse 14. Halfway through, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Chapter 15, verse 19. Then God opened up a hollow place and lay and water came out, and when Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. These are narrators' comments. And when you're studying Old Testament narrative passages, whenever you bump into a comment by the narrator, it's worth paying particular attention to it. The narrators often don't comment, but when they do, it's usually there for a very significant reason. And throughout these two chapters, the narrator's comments here and there are always positive, not negative. The narrator does not slam Samson. The narrator keeps pointing out, but this was from God, but this was the power of the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit came on, and the Lord revived him. The interpretation in chapters 14 and 15 of the Samson story is not that Samson is a bad egg, but that the Holy Spirit is at work through him. We've seen in the previous chapter that God has begun to initiate something for the salvation of his people. He's begun uh, to work out an unsought, unexpected and unhurried salvation. Now, we are perhaps 20 years later. Samson has come of age, he's an adult, and things are about to happen. He is about uh, to rise to some kind of national leadership position within Israel, and this chapter tells us something of how that rise came about. Everything we've looked at so far has prepared us for something great. It looks like we are headed, perhaps, for the most Christ-like of the judges. So let's get into the story. It unfolds in five episodes. Scene one. Samson falls for a Philistine woman. Samson's first recorded action is to fall for a woman, to fall for a Philistine girl. The only thing we know about her is that she lived in Timnah, Philistine territory. Samson saw her and wanted her. This was lust at her sight. His elderly, godly parents knew that this was wrong. The Israelites were not to intermarry with the nations around them. They were not to mix with the Canaanites or the people of that land or the other lands because God had warned them that if they intermarried with the nations around them, they'll be led astray. They'll, they'll soon start worshipping the gods of those women and they'll be taken away from the Lord. But that's what the whole of Israel is doing. Israel was about to see a whole lot more in the mirror than they'd already seen in chapter 13. Samson is really just doing what everyone's doing. 
They're all living in compromise. They're happily mingling with the Philistines and accepting their rule and enjoying their women. But what's different here is how God intended to use his poor choice. Again, verse 4 of chapter 14, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Now we need to be careful what we draw from that. This does not make it okay to sin. And we'll see that very clearly in chapter 16. We must never justify our wrong actions on the basis that God can use them. And to pick up a very similar scenario to the one that Samson is involved in here, it is never right <coughs> for a man to go out with an, a Christian man to go out with a non-Christian girl or a Christian girl to go out with a non-Christian guy on the basis that, well, God might be able to save this person through me. God has not designed relationships of that kind, male-female relationships, for evangelism. Don't justify your wrong actions on the basis of what God can do. But, on the other hand, God's grace is such that he even uses our sins to advance his plans. And God, it seems, has planned this bad relationship. Not so that a happy marriage would result from it, but so that tension and strife would be developed between the guy that he is raising up and the enemy, the Philistines. God's plan is to bring about confrontation. He's been grooming and raising Samson to be the deliverer of Israel and now he wants to bring the deliverer into conflict with the Philistines. He wants to bring a happy compromise to an end. He wants to bring them to a head. Maybe some of you have had that experience. I know uh, we, we sometimes with our children have sense that we need to bring them to a head here. No, the, the kids have just been getting a toe and they're pushing the boundaries. They're not overt and disobeying, but that ready willingness and submissiveness is not there. And so my wife uh, sneak off and we have a bit of a team talk <laughs> and we say, okay, we're going to bring this to a head. And so we will uh, perhaps ask one of our kids to do something that we know they're going to say no to. <laughs> so that we can deal with the underlying attitude. Now that's kind of what's going on here. I think God is about to bring things to our head. And his chosen means is this poor relationship with the girl and sin. That's been one. Before conflict comes, there's a second scene. See, so this person encounters a young lion. Uh, he's heading down to Kuna one day to see his girl, and as he heads down there, he is attacked by a lion. And we're told again, first six, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Uh, literally, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and empowered him to grab this lion and rip 
the creature a pan. It was a planet, although he's heading down there with his parents, evidently they are not present when this happens either. No one sees this or witnesses it but Samson himself. Why? <coughs> I suggest that it's because the Lord is demonstrating to Samson the divine power that he is able to give to them for the task he's going to call them to. God is graciously giving him evidence of the strength that first given in private will eventually be used in public. He wanted Stephen to know firsthand of the divine enabling that would be his. I'm reminded that God always equips those he calls for a particular task. God will never ask you to do anything that he won't enable you to do. Ah, oh, he'll often ask you to do things that you feel completely inadequate to do. I feel like I've had a lifelong argument with God about this. I frequently feel that I've been put in situations and positions that are way beyond my capacities. But God likes to put us there. So that we will depend on his grace. So that we can't do it in our own strength. And so that we will see that he is the his people for what he asks them to do. And I think that's what he's doing with Samson <coughs> in this private encounter with a lion. Let's be free. Verse 10, <coughs> proposes a river. He goes down sometime later to Timna again and it is his wedding day. Samson hosts a drinking party. It's called a feast in the NIV, but really the word behind it is it has a drinking party. And so, although it's not overtly said here, it's highly likely that we are to see Samson in a compromised position. He's already had contact and he's gone down there with a dead body, the lion's carcass. And now he's at a drinking party, most likely compromising his vow of no alcohol, no fermented drink. But, whatever. Samson's the life and soul of the party. Samson is a good time guy. He's having a lot of fun. He's got friends around there and he comes up with a riddle. How do I tell you guys? I'll tell you a riddle. You sell this. I'll buy you 30 cents of clothing. You can don't sell it. You buy me 30 cents of clothing. He sees the dead carcass. He scooped out some honey and it gave him this brilliant idea. Well, the Philistines find the riddle increasingly frustrating as the seven days wear on. And so they turn to his new wife. And they put pressure on her, I mean quite some pressure. Find out the answer would burn you in your house down. So she gets to work. And she wrings the secret from Samson. No, Samson, it's not fair. You told me to love me. But you've got to marry me, haven't you told me what your riddle is? Seven days of crying and manipulation gets to most men. 
Now I'm looking for the man who would know that he did. Some of you just understand so well, don't you? It's not the last time that one of his women will manipulate him. It's not the last time that he'll give away a secret when flyed by a woman. Well, Samson loses the bet. And he has to provide 30 sets of clothing. But he's not about to go down to the local Kmart and buy and the clothes. He heads down the road and kills 30 Philistines in Ashkelon and takes back their clothes. Now, if you think that Simpson is just a hot-headed thing, think again. Verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of the men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. This was the Lord's intention all along with that relationship, remember. The Lord had sanctioned this relationship not so that it would be a happy marriage between a Philistine and an Israelite, but so that there would be tension and conflict, and now that tension had begun. The marriage had rapidly turned to conflict. This was Samson's first act against the Philistines, and it may only be 30 men, but many more would follow. God, you see, was initiating a campaign through this man. And he would lead Samson progressively into the role that he wanted to have, a role of an Israelite finally rising up against the Philistines. And just as an aside, I think there's another principle at work here for how God often and typically works. And that is, he uses us in smaller things before he gives us more responsibility. And in a way, the conflict has begun small and we are very, very large. But that's typical of God's grace, that he will begin us in small things and he teaches us that we must be responsible in small things and then he will give to us more responsibility. When our children were little, we taught them to tie their pocket money higher than 20 cents. It's quite an interesting exercise. One of our kids found that a little difficult, but he would save up the tie over several weeks so that he could get five cents. It's a pathetic amount of money, but we wanted to instill a principle of thinking about setting apart some of what you get, whatever it is, for the things of the that principle ought to carry through all our Christian conduct and church leadership and discipleship and training. God will invariably start us in small things so that we get gold to responsibility and great Well, that's an aside, really. I go to scene four. At the end of chapter 14, it seems on quiet. Samson uh, has gone home, he's angry. 
But C4, beginning in chapter 15, Samson uh, tries to go back to his wife. He's calmed down, the time has passed, we don't know how much, but it seems he's decided to go back and make up with his wife. <coughs> he doesn't take a bunch of flowers, he takes a young goat, which is an interesting romantic for the gentleman here today. I don't know if you try the flowers, don't we? Try a young goat. <laughs> As he turns up, he finds out the unimaginable. She has been given to his best man. That really stirs his wrath. This time he goes out to use his strength, I don't know how and he does this, but he captures 300 foxes, ties their tails together, sets them alive, and releases them into the cornfields. What absolute havoc now. The grain fields are burnt down, the Philistines cross the lots. But <coughs> before we condemn them, remember God's plan. The plan of mounting tension between Samson and the Philistines. Well, tensions are really mounting now. The Philistines return fire for fire. They burn his wife and father-in-law and they go to the suit of Samson. Samson has fled to his own territory. He's looked the same haven amongst the people of Judah. And that's where we come to the verse that we looked at this morning. The people of Judah say, Samson, what are you up to? Look at the end again. Don't you realise that the Philistines are rules over us? What have you done to us? Well, I merely did to them, they did to me. If we've come to tie you up and hand you over the Philistines. See how completely surrendered are the Philistine rule. As I said this morning, it's a sign of them being a spiritual rock bottom. But God has a plan. Hmm. But by now we shouldn't be surprised at that. God has a plan. We're told again, verse 19, uh, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came on Samson and now he breaks free of the bonds that have been put on him. And he is given supernatural strength. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey, a fresh Jawbone means it's still got its teeth in it. It's a pretty nasty bit of work, this one. And with divine strength, he begins some sort of slashing enterprise. One thousand Philistine structure. One lion, thirty men, a thousand men. God's campaign through one man is advancing. God does not want his people living happily under Philistine rule. He is stirring up the stirring with the power of his friends. There's one more scene in the chapter. In chapter 15. Scene 5. Verses 18 to 20. 
Samson cries out to the Lord. After a day of jawbone-wielding activity, Samson is desperately thirsty. And he cries out to God for water. It's the first time we'll see something which might sort of be spiritual about Samson. It's the first time he prays. It's the first time he acknowledges the Lord. He has a sense that the Lord has enabled him. He has a sense that he is the Lord's servant. And he has a very keen sense of needing the Lord's help. You see, Samson was not strong in himself. God made him strong. And God now miraculously refreshes him, bringing water from the dry ground. Again, the mirror of Israel, just as the Lord had fed them and given water to them in the desert, just as the Lord was their provider, so now he refreshes and provides for the servant that he has raised And so these two chapters and all their drama come to an end. We'll see some applications along the way, more aside than the main point. I want to come back to the question of again, what kind of people do you think God uses? What kind of people does God use? Three things I want to say in closing. First of all, he uses flawed people. Like this. God uses flawed people. In a sense, he has to. <laughs> we are all full of weaknesses, failings, sinful inclinations, folly. Struggle with pride, with greed, with gossip. I have a bunch, uh, a bunch of young guys that I met with, so you disciple them in, in basic leadership training. We try to share together how we're tracking and encourage each other. I remember a few months back, one of these guys, just before we were about to pray together at the end of the evening, he said, Well, I've been struggling with lust a lot this past week, and I'd like to pray for I thought you champion. That is just refreshing honesty. Because there's barely a guy in this room who has struggled with life. It's God's amazing grace that He uses us in all our weakness and our foibles and our failures. And he turns our weaknesses to strength. He harnesses even our sins for his glory and turns evil to good. I can think of an area of constant temptation that I've had myself. And though I wish I could be rid of that temptation forever, I know that God has also used that struggle in my ministry. 
It's given me a greater understanding of the human heart and greater compassion for people who struggle with stuff and a much greater awareness of the astounding grace of God. Like I said before, this grace of God should never be used by us to excuse our sin. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Paul asked, by no means. You're dying to sin. How can you live in it any longer? If your corrupting brain reasons that way, then that you may as well have gone to the sin because God's going to work in it anyway and it'll be all to God's glory at the end of the day. You have to really think about whether your heart is the new heart of a believer. But there is this great encouragement for every single one of us here who's stuffed up. For every single one of us here who's struggled and done wrong. God is not stumped by our sin. And your sin may disqualify you from certain roles in the church and the kingdom. But it will never stop you from being useful to God. He will use even your weakness to advance his purposes. <coughs> but having said that, God's ultimate purposes cannot be achieved by four people. Ultimately, God's people need a righteous judge. They need a perfect and so in the fullness of time God did send them one better than Samson one better than David one greater than Solomon God sent his own son Jesus because though God uses flawed people the fulfilment of his grand purposes in this world can only be fulfilled by his perfect son Jesus Christ And as God uses us, all our hope rests on Jesus. It is through Him alone that we are made useful. So God uses all people. And secondly, He uses people who will fight. He uses people who will fight. I think it's so instructive that in these passages, when we're so quick to judge Samson for being a thug, what's really going on is God is setting up a conflict. God is raising up an army of one, a lone soldier, a single man who knows failing and corrupt would be the one guy who would take the Philistines on in a day when everyone else was happily compromising and living under their rule and their reign. God's purpose was that his people would no longer acquiesce to the rule of the Philistines. And so he stirs up and raises up and empowers a guy who will finally fight the enemy. In that sense, Samson is the most Christ-like of the judges. But Jesus Christ himself came to single-handedly defeat sin and evil. He came to set Israel free when his people were ruled by others. 
And he too was bound and handed over by his own people to the enemy, but by the power of the Spirit, broke free and had victory over sin and death. That one man, Jesus Christ, has had victory for us, victory for God's people. He defeated the temptations of the evil one. He conquered sin and death. And now, in the strength of Christ's victory, we're called to fight. We're to fight the good fight and run the race. We're to commit ourselves to God's cause and pour ourselves into I want to read a challenge that John Piper once penned. A challenge uh, to both men and to women. He wrote to women, My earnest challenge and prayer for you is this, and there are many points, but I just read one of them, that you be totally committed to ministry, whatever your specific calling that you not fritter away your time on soaps or women's magazines or unimportant hobbies or shopping, that you redeem the time for Christ and his kingdom. And the parallel statement to men is this. My earnest challenge and prayer for you is this, that you be totally committed to ministry, whatever your specific calling, that you not fritter away your time on excessive sports and recreation and unimportant hobbies or aimless fiddling in the garage. <laughs> but that you redeem the time for Christ and his kingdom. Don't you love that? <laughs> it is so easy for us to deal and fritter away time instead of hot. You can be saved and spend the rest of your days playing with model train sets and reading glossy magazines about people who are unsaved. God has given us a saviour who gave his life to have victory over sin and death and to free us from this world and secure for us an eternal inheritance. And we have a few years marked out now, not that many, and some of you very few, a few years marked out between now and eternity when we can do something to advance the cause of God. And I think God calls people to know the enemy and take up arms. People who say, this is wrong and I'm going to do something about it. And people who say, this is good, this is right and I'm going to pour my life into it. What good God will cause are you pouring yourself into? <coughs> what are you giving yourself to? other than watching footy and having coffee. 
God uses people to fight. And finally, it is a people who are filled with the Spirit. Samson wasn't just a big, tough dude. Samson was a spirit-filled dude. <laughs> they are the best kind of dudes there are. <laughs> In the Old Testament, that was kind of rare, you know? The Holy Spirit was at work in the people of the Old Testament, but the abiding uh, presence and fullness and empowering the Holy Spirit seemed to come upon particular people for particular roles. And then in time, God's own Son was anointed with the Holy Spirit and empowered for his ministry in which he had set us free from sin And now the Lord, having risen, has poured out his Spirit on all of his people. So that the Spirit of Christ lives in us. And by his Spirit, we are equipped and enabled to do his work. The Spirit is given to guide us and lead us and prompt us and enable us to do what God wants us to do. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit does not always give us large biceps. I've been praying for that for years and still <laughs> has not been answered. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit does give wisdom and faith, the ability to preach, the ability to lead, the ability to serve and have mercy and compassion and share the gospel. The Holy Spirit furnishes you with all that is necessary for you to engage in the fight for which he's called you to fight. And we must learn to be spirit-dependent as Samson at the end of chapter 15 cried out to the Lord for strength and cried out that he might be revived. So we as God's New Testament people are all to cry out for that. Plead that God would enable you and use you. That he furnish you with whatever gifts he wants to give you to do the work to which he called you to do. And whether you're big or little, whether you're bookish or boorish, whether you're educated or uneducated, the Spirit of God can use you powerfully to do His work in this world. What kind of people does God use? Lord people who fight for his cause with the enabling power of his spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace in using flawed people like us.
We've seen how you used Samson. You had a fight for him to fight and you enabled and empowered him despite the strangeness of his ways and the folly of his actions at times. Thank you, Lord God, that you used him, you raised him up. And now as those in Jesus Christ, those given victory in Christ, we pray that you would use us to use us with all our weaknesses and foibles. Help us not to fritter away our time, but to see that to which you call us to take up and fight against. And we pray that you would empower each one of us with your Holy Spirit. That we might do what you call us to do in utter dependence on your enabling. Thank you that this is your sovereign purpose, that in this world you will use weak people who are committed to the cause of a mighty and a glorious Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.